instead of any kind of empathy or instead of people realizing that these were structural issues, like Mm -hmm. there was a whole pandemic. Like even in this, we still talking about men pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. Like we still can't see it. I'm like, something's got to give. It's not you. It's capitalism. So welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Stuck with Damon Young, the show where we can't even go to the grocery store without some ones that's clean and a shirt with a team. But for real, capitalism, specifically the performance of what's necessary to exist in the system, can be a life-restricting, hypertension-inducing entity that convinces us to sacrifice everything to chase a thing we'll never actually catch. But Malika Jabali, author of the new book, It's Not You, It's Capitalism, believes that there's another way to be. And she joins me today to talk about the ills of capitalism, its connection with masculinity, and just how there can be another way to exist that isn't actively harmful to everyone in it. And then, for Dear Damon, I'm joined by stand-up comedian Zainab Johnson to help advise a husband with five young children who's anxious about the fact that his wife wants to do group Halloween costumes every year. All right, y'all. Let's get it. The homie Malika Jabali is the author of the book, It's Not You, It's Capitalism, which is in stores today. It's an amazing book. Please go out and get it. Malika, what's good? Hey, Damon. How you doing? (laughs) So good. It's been so long since I've seen you. I know. It's been so forever. Yeah. It's been a really long time. So I was in D.C. last week and we hung out for a bit. Malika was in D.C. because you are a New America fellow. Yes, I'm in the current class right now. Okay, can you explain a little bit what that is? What does that mean? Yeah, so New America is a think tank, and they've got a whole policy side where they advocate for different policies through the government, them being in D.C., mm-hmm. and they also want to encourage and support writers at different phases of their career. Mm-hmm. But the way that I think about New America is like, if they choose you when you're a journalist, that means you're a writer, writer. So... I transitioned from a whole different career, I would say different types of careers. And so to be selected as a fellow, I think it's 15 of us um, out of hundreds of people who applied. So I was like, oh, okay, this is legit. <laughs> like, I mean, y'all really do know that I'm a writer now. So it's, <laughs> it was good. It was, it's a good feeling. It's very affirming. I'm glad you mentioned that because there are a lot of different types of validators and validations that can come when you are making that switch to like a more traditional occupation to being a writer or any other type of art that you're trying to do full-time right and hearing someone else even though yeah of course you know you're supposed to be self-motivated and self-validating and all that fucking shit which matters right but it still does feel good to have other people recognize that and validate that you know i think my first like true validations, like, oh shit, I'm I'm really doing this for a living now is when I got a gig at Ebony Magazine. Mm. And this was in late 2011. Okay. Right. And that was like, okay, okay. <laughs> I got a job at a real place. Right. With a real like history and a real status. And I felt like, oh shit, like, okay, I'm, I'm a writer now. Right. For real. Yeah. It's helpful. Like we do, like you said, we should have that internal validation, but you know, we're writers, but we also want people to read it. And if you want to be professional, then you need readers. So are people willing to read your work? It's good to know. Yeah. And it's funny, this speaking of writing, hanging out with one of my friends and telling the story about one of the first pieces you wrote for VSB. And we had like a bit of a back and forth about the title. <laughs> now, if people read VSB, if you read VSB or, you know, a frequenter or a fan or whatever VSB back then, you know that we could get colorful (laughs) with the titles in the language sometimes. And I would do that too. And so Malika has a piece that I'm editing and she has a title that's good, that works, but I suggest something that's a bit more explosive. Like I forgot what the piece was about. Let's just say it was about like white supremacy. Basically, that's what it was about. Yeah. Yeah. And my title might've been white supremacists need to die and need to be <laughs> shot in the face and then need to be burned in the river and the river needs to be drowned and you need to drink the water and the devil, like 
Just some crazy ass fucking shit. <laughs> like it was like that sounds about it. Yeah, that was like what it was. Yeah, and <laughs> like was like, yo, I you know I got a job. <laughs> you know, I can't I can't put my name on a piece <laughs> with this title. Yeah, somebody signs my checks. Uh, they're probably a white person. So <laughs> that's funny. Let's just adjust a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and so again, we had a back and forth, but uh, I eventually it's like you know what, you're right. You have to be more mindful of those things. And then now you're a new America fellow and you have a book. Yes, I do have a book. That just launched last week. You are in the middle of your tour right now. I am. And you took some time out of your busy schedule to join us today. So we appreciate it. So how's your tour been so far? It's been good. So the book is It's Not You, It's Capitalism, Why It's Time to Break Up and How to Move On. It came out last Tuesday. I didn't realize that books were like back in the day with albums dropping before like streaming. It was like Tuesday was the day. So it's like Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Hot Fire just dropped uh, October 24th. And my first stop was New York City, technically Brooklyn at Cafe Con Libros. And it was a really nice experience. It was fortifying. I like to be in community with a lot of radical lefty people, especially in this era right now where there is so much to be depressed and despondent about. Mm -hmm. But talking to other people who have a radical vision, I kind of made it a little bit interactive. We had Chris Smalls, the Amazon Labor Union president. He came through as my conversation partner. And he's also one of the people that I featured in the book. So being able to to have, you know, the book reinforced and the ideas behind it reinforced with that kind of community in that space was very nourishing. And I've got a book signing on Thursday, November 2nd. Anybody's in the ATL. <laughs> Keith Lee, if you still around, come on through. <laughs> Keith Lee is moving furniture in the ATL right now. He is, yes, no holds barred. He is turning that city on its head. You know, I feel like that that's somewhat of an indictment or a commentary on capitalism, right? Because Keith Lee, for people who don't know, he's a popular TikToker. He goes into random restaurants across the country. He reviews them. He's very kind, very sweet. Is he Christian? He seems Christian. He seems very Christian. Definitely pastor kids vibe. Super earnest, you know, whatever. And so he has gone to different cities around the country. You know, it's been whatever, good reviews, bad reviews, but he's gone to Atlanta and he's had a very unique experience in Atlanta. You know, and part of his experience has been like, the customer service has been lacking. And, you know, you have these environments or these restaurants where people are more focused on the money-making aspect of it as opposed to actually taking care of their regular customers. Where it's more about, like, the performance of wealth, the performance of status, the performance of access, the performance of capital, of currency, instead of actually investing in people who go to eat in your restaurant. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, so much of capitalism, it feels like there are so many performances that have to be maintained in order to survive and even, you know, thrive in a capitalistic society. And I think that, you know, what you're doing with your book and with your work is just basically just pulling back the curtain and being like, you know what? There's a better way to live. Yeah. the You know, we talk about the emperor not having clothes. The empire has no clothes. This American empire is really built on a lot of lies about alternatives, which is why the book is framed around a toxic relationship. Because usually if somebody needs to lie to you and emotionally or physically abuse you into a relationship, there's some kind of insecurity there. There's something that's lacking with them where they are projecting all of that onto you and onto the relationship. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just thinking about Atlanta, the other side of that performance is that there's real disenfranchisement happening even amongst the performers, you know? And so Atlanta, I grew up here, Mm -hmm. the land prices have skyrocketed. Rent has skyrocketed. So if you want to preserve whatever kind of pride you have or image you have, you're going to put on airs. And so I think that's what's happening with a lot of these Atlanta restaurants. Like you've got the ones, like the two that he reviewed that were good were actually not in the city of Atlanta. You know, I don't know if there's a correlation there, but they could probably afford their lease. They could afford their space. They're like out in Fairburn and somewhere else outside of the city limits. 
And so when you can afford those things, you don't have to put on airs. You don't have to find, you know, new ways to drum up money and like low key scam people because <laughs> you're doing fine. And Atlanta is that kind of city where unfortunately so many black people have gotten pushed out to those outskirts. And so if you want to survive in this central city, you got to come up with gimmicks. That's that on key. <laughs> he should still come to the book signing if he's around. This is not a gimmick. <laughs> and you're from Atlanta. Yeah, I grew up here. Yeah. Right. And so how much, I guess, has like the culture there influenced your politics in terms of you becoming a socialist? It's interesting. It's uh, in two ways. You know, so one is there is this under discussed black radicalism that I grew up around. Mm-hmm. You know, so Atlanta has every type of black person. And I think that's one of the things that people forget because we're so used to what comes up on TV with like bougie blacks or bougetto people or whatever, there has been like a radical communities here that I grew up in. And so one of them is the Republic of New Africa. That's like, how radical can you get the Republic of New Africa? And it's Africa with a K and not a C. (laughs) Um, I grew up under black liberation (laughs) theology. It's a church called the Shrine of the Black Madonna. And both of those were actually started in the Midwest, but they had migrants who came back down South and they built communities here based on, finding alternative ways of being that rejected Western norms. It rejected these ideas of individualism. Republic of New Africa was actually built on socialist tenets. So Mm -hmm. there are phrases in there that look like, you know, you're reading any kind of like socialist theorist book, just about, you know, black people supporting each other and redistributing wealth and distributing it in a communal way. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was very formative to me. It's possible that I could have been socialist without it, Mm -hmm. but it was, key to my upbringing. I think one in seeing like the primacy of race in so many important class policies and then connecting these racial issues with how do we get here? How was race constructed? And that happened in college. Um, So that was real key to me. But then, you know, also seeing, you know, black people excel and having, you know, black models to follow, black people who are doing well, It also made me see the hypocrisy of capitalism and how unwell, you know, we can be even in the black Mecca. Yeah. And we were hanging out last week. We talked about that a bit, you know, big fun, fun conversation over drinks, talking about socialism, (laughs) (laughs) capitalism, (laughs) you know what I mean? But, um, and also how some of the, of the other, I guess, social ills that characterize our condition here, you know, whether it is racism or misogyny or patriarchy or classism, whatever, are all intertwined, all interconnected, and they each have a symbiotic relationship with each other. And specifically, we were talking about masculinity and how masculinity and capitalism are intertwined because there's so much of what I was taught a man was supposed to be or man had to be. And if you weren't these things, you weren't masculine. And how much of that is dependent on money? How much of that is dependent on your financial value? And if you don't have like a certain financial value, then that means you don't have like a certain value whatsoever. And that's one of the things that I know that it's a fallacy now, right? But it's still very difficult for me to kind of unpack that. Well, I'll I'll admit that there is a direct line between how successful I am financially or career-wise and how I feel about myself and my manhood. All the other, quote unquote, you know, superficial markers of manhood, family, children, um, career, even like physical size, whatever, all those things are all part of the same pot. But the money part is, I guess, the most nebulous because it is the most tenuous where it could disappear like that, particularly if you're black in America, it could be gone tomorrow. It could be gone today. Right. And so it's just a really just fucked up circumstance where so much of a person's personhood is connected to the bank account. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The inspiration for the title actually came from that observation. Mm -hmm. So I was on Twitter and this was when, you know, I think people were talking about the COVID checks running dry and People were still suffering from the effects of unemployment. So all this was going on. So all these societal, like structural problems. And there was a a younger Black dude who got on Twitter and he was talking about how he was struggling to find enough work to pay his rent. He was already working 
multiple jobs. In the comments, when people were replying to him, the main thing was like, man, you need to man up. Like, why this man over here, like, crying? Like, you such a bitch. Like, da da da. Such a simp. Like, you need to get it together. It's not funny. I should be laughing, but that, you know, it's not funny, but it's funny. But it's not funny. Yeah. It's real, you know, and this is what we do. You know, we clown people. It's like the cafeteria. So if you show any type of vulnerability, especially if you're a man, especially if you're a black man, People are going to clown you. And so instead of any kind of empathy or instead of people realizing that these were structural issues, like there was a whole pandemic. Like even in this, we still talking about men pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. Like we still can't see it. I'm like, something's got to give. And so when I was reading the comments and people were recommending that he get like a third and fourth job, I was like, dude, it's not you. It's capitalism. Mm -hmm. It's not you. It's not your fault. You know, we have a whole system that has created these kinds of conditions for us. And so it just went from there into like having a full blown relationship allegory for us being in this toxic relationship. And then we get gaslighted. (laughs) I guess it was kind of serendipitous. You had that experience or you were able to witness that experience on Twitter, because I was going to ask you also if the book and the title came from like your own relationship experience, like if it was something where something in some relationship connected is like, oh, this is, this, this nigga's like capitalism. <laughs> right? This specific <laughs> one. <laughs> this specific one. This capitalist ass nigga is <laughs> like capitalism. <laughs> I wouldn't say in terms of the title and I think like pivoting to that, no, it was really having that observation. But as I was writing the book well before that, this might have been, I started working on the book in 2021. And I think when I saw this exchange was 2022. So I was over halfway done with the book. Mm -hmm. But up until that point, I still was weaving in relationship metaphors because I was going through a couple of breakups and it did remind me of that. (laughs) Um, So I was weaving in, you know, references here and there, you know, and you get love bombed and um, guys who like make all these promises and then you don't get any delivery on those promises. Um, so some of that was getting incorporated, but that was really like kind of what made me go, aha, like this whole thing should be based around that. <laughs> so I'm curious, like for you also, you know, you're someone who has more of a socialist foundation than most people because you grew up with it. You were indoctrinated in it, basically. You know what I mean? Indoctrinated has a weird connotation. I, I think you just grew up with it as fine because indoctrinated Sounds like manipulative, almost like some sort of propaganda. Yeah, because it was, I mean, and honestly, it was around me, but I didn't process it as anything because we weren't really getting lessons in socialism. Like we were just talking about black power, black revolutionaries and just being communal. So there was like that phrase just never entered my consciousness. It didn't really come. I didn't become aware of it really until I was an adult. My question, though, is, you know, do you have any tensions that exist now? Because, again, you you have this upbringing and you have this politic, but you're also a citizen of the world, an American citizen who is exposed to the same things that we all are exposed to. And some of that messaging can be seductive as a motherfucker. And so are there any parts of like the capitalism or the performance of capitalism that you still have attention with or still feel a need to like extract? That's a great question. I think it is almost inescapable, especially if you live in America, to not have kind of those strivings. And so some of it, I don't know if it's a tension between me and capitalism, or I would say like morally or just how I am, like personality, I guess. I guess it's like, is it ideology or is it personality that I'm, you know, feeling this tension with? Because I value hard work. Like I actually do, you know? And so when it does come to relationships, I also want a partner who has like a strong work ethic. Like I was talking to my homegirls about it. Um, But then what do you do with that when work is hard to come by? So I know for myself, like even when I'm into relationships, like I still, I still want financial security. Um, And we're just not at that point right now as a country or a world for the most part where you can get that that financial security without engaging in some kind of capitalist enterprise, you know? So I want to be able to get through the airport. I like convenience. You know, I want to be able to get through the airport. I want my digital ID. I want my Delta Sky Lounge. I want things to be easy because I work a lot. (laughs) <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I just want life to be easy. Um, so I think it's it's like a matter of 
knowing when you want certain conveniences versus when you're exploiting other people. You know, and so am I exploiting others because I'm getting for my job? I have to have a certain appearance. Where am I buying my clothes from? You know, there's really no ethical consumption under capitalism. So I think being a consumer and like wanting these conveniences, living in the society is like one obvious tension. Yeah. And you bring up the point about comfort and about how, you know, you just appreciate the flexibility. You, you appreciate, you know, you have to travel a lot and just being able to, you know, one of the biggest changes that I've been able to experience from not having much money at all to doing considerably better, you know, than I grew up is that there is a level of comfort, right? And flexibility that that money provides where, you know, if something goes wrong, you can fix it. You know what I mean? You can upgrade to like the seat that's more comfortable, you know, for the long trip. You can make the trip and pay for the healthier food, you know what I mean? Because you're gluten free or because you're vegan or, you know, because you saw this really interesting TikTok about how you're not supposed to eat rice after eight o'clock and now you just want to extract rice from your diet <laughs> or whatever, you know what I mean? And so that is a tension because, you know, I think, so you have this capitalist rat race, right? Where everyone is trying to, you know, make this money and get this status, whatever. And the thing is the status and the money can provide some creature comforts that might be elusive to people who don't have the status, don't have the money. And so it's like, well, you want to extract the capitalism and like, you know, extract the rat race and just like, you know what, we, we have enough. We have enough to survive. We can be comfortable. We could be fine. We'll be fine. Right. So there's that. But the only way to get that with the way the world is, well, specifically the way that America is right now is to work hard and to make money. Right. And so those things, there is like just a, a natural tension there because like you were saying, I mean, you know, the things that you want to do in order to just make your experience on this earth a bit easier, a bit more flexible, a bit more comfortable. Those things are only found right now through achieving as much, making as much as you can. Right. And I think one of the key points that I hope to get across through the work is, and that's very early in the book, being a consumer doesn't make you a capitalist. You know, we had people who wanted creature comforts before capitalism. We had people who had money. We had trade. We had markets before capitalism. But capitalism is a uniquely oppressive type of system to get those things. You know, and so the key here is to look at the players, the capitalists, you know, not the people who have to live in capitalism, but the people who are making the uh, management decisions, the ones who are moving jobs to manufacturing centers in other countries so they can pay people 10 cents an hour, if that, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's about the people who are lobbying Congress to make sure that the average person doesn't get health care and they have the millions of dollars to invest to make sure that the average person does not have universal health care. So mm -hmm. um, that tension exists because those are ethics under a capitalist system, but that is not capitalism itself. Well, I think that's the first time I really heard someone parse out the difference between consumerism and capitalism, right? And so thank you for that. Although I guess my follow-up is that it feels like to me, and again, this is someone who again, doesn't know as much about this as you do, but it feels like to me that that's letting the consumer off the hook mm. because the capitalists are only able to exist because we are consuming, because we are supporting, because we are buying, because we are frequenting. Not necessarily. Okay. Can you explain? Yeah, not necessarily. I mean, okay. or I would say that the role is, I think, not discussed enough. You know, so for instance, let's take the financial industry as one example and student loans. Mm -hmm. So yes, students are consumers. Like we want to, you know, have these degrees and do well in school and get good jobs, right? So on one hand, technically we are the ones consuming these loans. We're taking them out. You know, at 18 years old, we're signing our financial rights away. But we don't talk enough about how the student loan industry lobbies Congress to make sure that, you know, if this is one of the few loans and creditor relationships you can be in where if you go bankrupt, you still owe the debt. 
we don't talk enough about you have these business friendly politicians who made sure that we didn't get free tuition. So over the years, as these schools started to become more integrated, you saw this push for privatizing the public education sector, especially in higher education. And so as more black people, as more people of color, as more poor people were able to get into these colleges, then school said, you know what, shut it down. Like, you know, we're going to raise tuition. And then if you raise tuition, then we got to take out loans. So yes, but we are a lot of times forced into some of these financial relationships, forced into being consumers when in the past we didn't necessarily have that relationship. So it's not you, it's capitalism. It's available wherever you can get books, although we prefer that you buy it from an independent bookstore, Black-owned independent bookstore if you can. The day this drops, you will be in Atlanta doing your signing. So if you're listening, if you're in the Atlanta area, please attend. Keith Lee, if you are, if you are listening, <laughs> you got a special request from Malika. And she'll make sure to have like the Atlanta special lemon pepper, white Hennessy, <laughs> Lamb chops and wings available for you. Dry or wet, however you like, however you prefer. <laughs> yes, I have a little pepper wet. <laughs> and I want to add too, because, you know, this is all very serious theory, but it's a lot of fun. You know, I wanted to do something that reflected my personality. Like, I feel like, you know, I'm talking to a homegirl, basically. So as deep as this is, um, you know, I'm trying to get people to see, you know, the other side. And to do that, I didn't want to just steep it into a bunch of like, inaccessible rhetoric. So there are some Drake memes in there. I tell some jokes. I hope people can laugh at it a little Drake. bit. It's illustrated. Let me show y'all. It's illustrated. And, you know, so we do like, we do a little fun, fun. Wait, I can't do it that way. It's a sort of book that you could find in Barnes and Noble and also your independent bookstore, but also like in Urban Outfitters. Like it's, a, it's like a very infographic heavy, but it's also, you know, I think sometimes you see a book that is very aesthetically pleasing and people assume that there's not a lot of like rigor right. attached to it but you've combined the aesthetic and rigor yeah thank you with your book and so it was a tremendous achievement thank you for writing it thank you for coming on thank you thanks for having me to talk about it of course up next is Dear Damon with comedian Dana Johnson but first Damon Hates All right. So last week I was in Washington, D.C. for a few days to host an event. And it was a really good time. Panama Jackson and I hosted it. It was the Hurston Wright Legacy Awards, which is an annual award ceremony for black books, for black authors, for black literature. And it was a really dope experience at the Lincoln Theater in D.C. And again, this is my first time hosting a thing. And it took a bit for me to kind of figure out what to wear. So I ended up wearing like a leather jacket, leather pants. <laughs> I had my Eddie Murphy and Raw look going on, you know, but it worked. I thought it worked. Other people said it worked. Anyway, I met someone after the show who had come with a friend, right? It was my first time meeting this person. And then I spoke to that same friend about a week later who had mentioned that the person thought that I was kind of standoffish and aloof. And I guess the Damon Hates this week is about, I don't know, I sometimes wish that my personality, that I was more naturally introverted, because I think that people maybe anticipate me being a certain way based off of my work, based off of my writing, based off of again, me wearing a full leather fit with this, you know, Killmonger hair thing going on right now and expect like a certain personality and don't expect me to be as introverted as I am. And so I just wish sometimes that my personality actually met that and the performance of extroversion wasn't a performance, but I could just naturally be more personable and to the point where I didn't have to perform it, where I feel like I'm on. And then once I'm on, I got to go somewhere to recharge. And then sometimes if someone meets me during that recharging period, or during a period when I'm quote unquote off, it could be like, oh, Damon's kind of a dick, <laughs> right? Damon's kind of an asshole. And I don't want people to go away thinking that. It is something 
that yes i do more in-person hosting type of things more stuff on stage more stuff in front of audiences i just want to be mindful of because again it's a part of my personality that i haven't always loved now i've learned to lean into the introversion to lean into the fact that this is just who i am but every once in a while there's a situation like this where someone gets an experience with me that i just wish they didn't have you know what i mean and so i guess my hate and it's not really a hate it's more just a angst this week is about just me and i wish that again the more personable the more extroverted parts that i have to perform sometimes were a bit more natural Stand-up comedian Zainab Johnson's new comedy special, He Jobs Off, is available right now on Amazon Prime Video. So please go check it out. Zainab. Hey. What's good? I'm really good. Morgan, the producer, uh, what we got this week? Dear Damon, this Halloween, my wife really wanted to do a family costume with all of our kids for the first time now that our youngest is three. I've never been big on the holiday or the idea of costumes, but when we dated, I used to do couple fits to make her happy. We did it. We were the Incredibles. Damon, we have five children. That was expensive. The prospect of Halloween becoming a Christmas-level financial burden, you know, different costumes every year, scares me and my wallet to death. How do I talk her down off this idea, or should I just bite the bullet? All right. This guy, he's already not into the the family Halloween costume, and he's recognizing that, Mm -hmm. you know what, this is going to be a commitment for 18 years. That's 18 different costumes. And, you know, who knows, maybe the kids will come back home after they go to school or whatever, graduate from college, and then you still have to do the family costume. So maybe this is a commitment for like 30 years of 30 different costumes. What would you tell this guy? 18 different years. 18 different costumes for 18 years, but he also say he has five kids. So we got to multiply that. Yeah. Five. Yeah. That's this is. Or him and her. So that's really seven. Oh, man. It's a lot. It's a lot. The practical answer is, you know, he's talking about it like not not so much. I'm like, oh, I'm just tired of it. All oh, the accoutrement. I just can't take it. You know, she's making us paint our face. He didn't he didn't approach it from that place. He approached it from a purely financial place. This is a burden financially or it has the potential to be. That's just a practical decision. Yes or no. Mm-hmm. You know, but I don't I mean, also Halloween being Christmas level. That's a lot. Halloween was just not the thing that it is today, 20 years ago when I was growing up, right? I, I, like people got costumes and you went trick-or-treating and maybe adults would have Halloween parties and dress, you know, in a, in a manner that, you know, gave everyone excuses to wear as little clothes as possible. And then it was <laughs> over. But now it mm-hmm. does feel like Halloween is becoming a product. Like, again, and maybe because I'm an adult and I just have a different perspective than the one that I had when I was a kid. But it does feel like Halloween is becoming like a Christmas level financial commitment, Christmas level, you know, um, planning sort of holiday, too. Now, is this just me or is this something that you've noticed as well? So I'm Muslim, so I don't celebrate Christmas or um, Halloween. So it's all kind of foreign to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But... Hmm. I do see it as a way to activate one's imagination, you know, mm-hmm. and I think I think that the world has we're, like in 20 years, the world has changed a lot. There's social media, there's the Internet, there's a push for mental health. So there's this constant need to, like, let out your creative aspirations, even if you don't work in a creative field. And so there may be something to that. There, I, I feel like the queer community, they do a really good job at, at really, you know, going all out during Halloween. And I think mm-hmm. in the 20 years, that movement has made some really great strides. You get what I'm saying? So maybe all of those things contribute to, um, you know, Halloween becoming a, a much bigger production. Um, but yo, it's your house. If your wife is, is want to do something and you feel like the household can't really um, sustain for a long period of time, then you got to you gotta have that conversation. 
Well, you know, I, I want to say really quickly that I appreciate how you call me old without coming out and just calling me old <laughs> in your response. I, I, I appreciate that. You did. You did. It's like, you know, the world is a much different place than it was 20 years ago, Damon. You know, society's different. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are like well, social justice movements. You know what I mean? You need to go outside and touch some grass, Damon. And, and you know, you're not, <laughs> you're not 12 years old anymore. It's not 1970. Right. Well, dang, I ain't even put you that far back. So now you're telling on yourself. <laughs> but um, but you know, your your point, and and I think it's a it's a fair one and a good one about how um and again, as someone, you know, as you're saying, you don't celebrate, you know, Halloween or Christmas, but you went, you're able to see, you're on social media, you're able you're able to see just how how serious some people take mm-hmm. this. And I do think one, the you know, the prevalence of social media where now you can show off your costume and you can show off your costume in a way, like in a very particular way that you weren't able to necessarily do when it was just in person, because you could have like the social media, the Instagram or the Twitter or whatever posts where you have like your costume and then you have the the reference picture right next to it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Whereas mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. you're just in person, you're not going to be carrying around like a picture of who you're supposed to be all night. Yeah, yeah. And so there's that. And then your point about queer communities and other people who have been disenfranchised, other communities that have been vulnerable, you know, seeing this as an opportunity to just be free, to be creative, to mm-hmm. connect with like-minded people. And that's something that, again, that happened pre-internet, but the internet has been this conduit to allow this sort of thing yeah. to just be, you know, to, to just be bigger. And more widespread. Yeah. So those those are good points, I will admit. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but I, I do feel like there's some information in the question or letter that's left out. Like, you know, is this a stay at home mom? Or mm-hmm. is she also going out to work? It sounds like she's a stay at home mom. And she might really feel the pressure. He might be looking at it like, well, she's doing too much, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have encouraged this, right? Because that's what he said. Um, but also, she may feel like this is all a part of that job position, you know, like really mm-hmm. giving her family the best experience in, you know, during these days. But also, she might have friends and she might be competitive. Mm-hmm. And she might be like, remember Tina last year? <laughs> Tina had all of the kids, you know what I'm saying? And the whole neighborhood was talking about how Tina killed Halloween and that's not going to happen again. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the thing is too, you know, just because, you know, you have to do a Halloween costume every year and you have to do the family thing every year, which, you know, you do have to be creative because, okay, so if you're doing a, a family costume every year, then you have to find you know, what do you say? Five kids? Mm-hmm. You say five kids? So you have to find like a seven person group costume yeah. with the same theme. So that's like Avengers. That's, yeah. you know, superhero, other superhero movies, Marvel. That's um, that's maybe Brady Bunch. But see, now that you're talking about it, this sounds so much fun to me, Damon. Because now we get to think, like, now it's like, oh, yeah, what are the other things that come in like sevens? Like, as you're talking, I'm like, dang, she she could have been like the 83 Lakers. The kids could have been like the, the starting five. And then you got the coach and you got, do you know what I'm saying? You got the assistant. Like, they're now, I don't know. I'm on board. I'm on board. Yeah. Yeah. I, I And, and I, I, I. I side more with the dad on this because I'm just thinking, and it's not even it, it's not even about the financial investment. It's more of like the the intellectual bandwidth of having to think of new costumes every year. But what I was going to say is that maybe you could repeat. Now you don't have to repeat like like every year, but like so you you do this one thing in 2023, and then maybe you bring it back in 2028. You know what I mean? So if you want to now save we got money, a different problem. <laughs> if you want to save money, <laughs> right? You could, you know, you could space out the repeats. You don't have to do it every year, but you could do it long enough. Or maybe you move, and and when you move, you go like, oh, we just refresh. We're just starting new. And this this new neighborhood Damon, hasn't seen no, no, the no. twenty twenty three costume. <laughs> Damon, I hate, I hate, I hate to be, I hate to just tell you, 
Them kids is five kids. In 20 to five years, those five kids ain't going to be able to fit them same costumes. Well, okay? I mean, different, no. same theme. Same theme, though. Same, same theme. So you don't have to, so you're still spending money, but you don't have to think of a new thing. That's what I'm saying. You could just update it with like, you know, now, now you're buying double XL Spider-Man costumes. Okay. For your kids or, okay. or whatever. So do you think it's the, it's the, um, the creation of it or the thought behind it that's giving him like the fatigue? I th- I think it's I think it's both I think it's the financial part okay. and the thought behind it and the planning. I think that for some people okay. that's just a lot of work for some and for some people okay. other people that's a lot of fun. It sounds like for yeah. the, for the wife for his partner this is like holy shit this is fun but for other people that's like holy shit this is work. Yeah. So he said, do you ever answer like do you ever give like concrete advice like okay well this is what you do. <laughs> I, mean, I try. <laughs> See, there you go. You summon me again. <laughs> like, do you ever, do you ever actually give advice on this advice thing? <laughs> wow. So, yes, the actual advice. I think. I think you have to just bite the bullet on this. I, I, I do. I, I think that the guy. Yeah, I actually like. Even though I sympathize with him, and you know, I am with him. I believe that for like a happy home and also just for, you know, it's a sort of thing where you, you might hate planning it, but once you actually mm. do it and it's Halloween, you're going to have fun and then you're going to take mm. pictures and then you're going to love those pictures. And then you're going to look mm-hmm. back on those pictures four five, six years from now. And you're going to have fun memories and fun feelings about those pictures. Hopefully, you know, if you're still mm-hmm. together or whatever. Um, and so I think it's one of those things where you, you just take one for the team because of the, you know, the future impact and, and also how everyone else is going to feel in a family. Okay. Okay. What do you think? Um, I don't quite agree. Like, I do understand the concept of like, you know, um, biting a bullet, but I think that I would give that advice when you know it's a one-time thing. But I think that if he constantly has to do something that he has a problem with enough that he chose to write into a podcast, <laughs> <laughs> then it, it'll it just build up, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I think in those little things that you are that you bit the bullet on, like, they cause resentment. You know what I'm saying? And then five years from now, she's like, can you get the paper towels out the van? And he's like... I hate you and your Halloween costume. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, we could have just avoided that by at least letting her know. Like, letting her know doesn't mean that she's not going to do Halloween this year. But it's like being honest in every moment and then making her aware that I'm kind of compromising, you know? And so have fun, but maybe we can not do that. Maybe we can move away from this sometimes. So I actually agree with you in part. Like, I think that transparency and communication matters here. I think that he should tell her that, you know what, I will do this, right? But this is why, this is how I'm feeling about it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But, but, I, but I actually think that, again, a month from now, even, two months from now, once he looks back and it's like he looks at the pictures and he has the cute pictures of the family and everyone had a great time. I, I think that is one of those things where he's going to hate planning it. But then once you actually do it, once he actually does it, once he actually is able to reflect on it, he might feel differently about mm-hmm. it. Because that's happened with me. Okay. Because I'm the person who I, I have to have my, my arms pulled, my fucking nails pulled in order to do things. And especially things okay. like this. I have, you know, wife, two kids and... We are mm-hmm. doing a group. We're doing <laughs> a family theme costume this year for the first time. And it is taking about it is taking about five or six months for me to be able to like kind of just wrap my mind around it and like, you know what, okay, this is what we're doing. I guess this is what we're doing. And I guess I'm gonna do it. But at the same time, I, I knowing me, I know that a month from now. And I look back and I see some of the pictures and see how much fun everybody had. I'm going to be like, you know what? Why, why was I making a big deal about this? this everyone had a good yeah. time. I had a good time. So come on. And, but then next year, it's going, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to do the same thing. <laughs> it's just the same cycle. cycle each year. So, 
So, yeah. I have a question. Yeah. What happens if and when a month later you don't look back on it and have a newfound appreciation for it? What if a month later you're like, you still letting out that sigh? That's when you write a book like Jada. <laughs> I mean, talking, but you know, that's what I'm getting at. Ex, exes from like when you were 14 years old, and you know you get tattoos of them on your body. But um, I don't think that's going to happen. I just, I just, I just don't think. I, I think there are certain resentments. There are certain things that could be like a resentment that could build up and then bubble over that you need to nip in the bud, right? I, I just don't think as this is one of those types of things. I, I don't. Mm. I could be wrong. I'm wrong a lot. <laughs> <laughs> right? But I, I don't think I'm wrong on this. So. Okay. I have one more question. Okay. What was your favorite? Because throughout your life, you dressed up for Halloween before, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but both as just an individual and with your family, right? As an individual, Yes. Okay. <laughs> you are not on the stand. I did not ask you if you... <laughs> None of this will be held against you. When you dressed up, do you have any memory of like your favorite costume? Like you you, you set your mind to it before you put work into it or you, you sourced it and, and you, were one, you were happy with the way it looked and everybody knew exactly what you were when they saw you and you were like, I did that. Okay, so I have two stories, neither of which okay. answer your question, but are both Halloween-related stories. Okay. <laughs> yeah, all right. So um, when, I was, when I was in high school, I think I was like 15, 16 years old. I have an older sister. Uh, my sister has kids. And there was a situation where the kids had to live with uh, my mom and my dad and I for, for a while, okay, for about a year. And so a, a two-year-old, like a six-year-old and like a uh, like a four-month-old on on our house, right? My nieces and nephew. And so my nephew, uh, one year, wanted to be the screen mask, you know, um, Ghostface screen mask for Halloween, yeah. right? And he talked about this. This little nigga talked about this for an entire year. He could not wait to be Ghostface. He could not wait to be Scream. And every like it felt like every day or at least once a week he was like. Uncle Damon, when is it going to be Halloween? I can't wait till I'm Ghostface for Halloween. When's it going to be Halloween? Gets to Halloween. We get his mask. Get his full costume. We get him even like a fake like machete or whatever. Boom. Rocking it. And me and him are about to go trick-or-treat. I'm about to take him out. Don't you know that this kid looked in the mirror and refused to go because he was too scared of himself? That is so funny and so <laughs> adorable. I wanted to choke him because of how much, again, how much he talked about Halloween. Like it was a nonstop thing for a year. And then day of, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I, I mean, I, part of me was like, okay, I, that means I don't, I don't have to take you trick or treating. Great. <laughs> All right. So there was that part. <laughs> but then it was also like, come on, come on, come on, man. Come on. Come on. Yeah. So, okay. It's almost like, how old was he? Like six. Six. It's almost like the six-year-old version of like peekaboo. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. definitely. That's so definitely. Funny. And, he, and, That's and so again, I, I don't think I've seen something. I, st- I still remind him of that to this day. I mean, he's he's 30-something years old now. He has, like, a kid and all of that. And I'm like, yeah, I remember when you, you know, you might be a little bigger than me now, but I remember when you were too scared of your mm-hmm. own shadow to go trick-or-treating. Mm-hmm. So there's that story. And then there's a time, I guess about, like, 11, 12 years ago, um, me and my friend, we went to a Halloween party. We were adults. I didn't really have a costume. So I went to a Rite Aid, got, like, a hockey mask, got a white T-shirt, and um, some um, some some red magic markers drew a bunch of blood on it. Boom, Jason Voorhees, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And I had a lot of fun at that party. So, but mm-hmm. I guess okay. my point is, I'm 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 I don't really have like a long history of like costumes because okay. even as a kid, I didn't really, 
Halloween wasn't like my bag. That wasn't like a yeah. uh, a holiday that I was really into. I was into the candy, but I was fine with you just get get me some mask and a cape or some shit or like some vampire teeth or something, and I'm I'm fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But Zainab Johnson, I appreciate you yes. coming through. Of course. Are you torn right now? I have um, two shows coming up uh, in Texas, actually. Um, November 29th, I'll be in Arlington, Texas at the Arlington Improv. And then the 30th, I'll be in Houston, Texas at the Houston Improv. Um, But yeah, I just want everybody to watch my one-hour special. That's what I want them to do, which is available in everybody's home all over the world via Amazon Prime. Okay. And what's the name of the special? Hijabs Off. Okay. Perfect name. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Please yeah. check out the special. Check out Zainab in person. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Again, just want to thank the homie Malika Jabali, Zainab Johnson for coming through. Great conversation, great guests, great people, great topic. And thank you all again. Could have been anywhere else in the world, but you chose to be here with us, Suck With Damon Young. And again, you can find Suck With Damon Young on any platform, wherever you get your podcast. But if you're on Spotify, particularly if you're on the Spotify app, there's some interactive questions, polling, answers, fun, games, knock yourself out, have a good time, invite a friend. And again, if you have any questions about anything whatsoever, hit me up at DearDamon at Crooked.com. All right, y'all. See you next week. Stuck with Damon Young is hosted by me, Damon Young. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are Kendra James and Madeline Herringer. Our producers are Ryan Wallerson and Morgan Moody. Mixing and mastering by Sarah Gibb-Alaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Theme music and score by Taka Yasuzawa. And special thanks to Charlotte Landis. And from Spotify, our executive producers are Lauren Silverman, Neil Drumming, and Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to Leslie Guam and Crystal Hall Stressler.